let us do another Q&A where I'll talk about 457 plans, Roth 401k conversions, wash sales, when to consider buying treasury notes, and much more in this, the 52nd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you, as always, for listening. We got a, another Q&A question and answer edition tonight, uh, today, where I'll answer a handful of questions that were sent in. Thank you for those who, who did send them. For anyone uh, going forward who would like a question answered on the show, you can send it to andypanko at gmail.com. That is A-N-D-Y. P-A-N-K-O at gmail.com. You can either uh, write it, you know, normal email or special brownie points. If you can record yourself asking the question, you know, like a, a voice recording, send that and I can play the recording on the show, which is always a little fun to do. So before we, we got, we got some great questions before we get into it. Apologies in advance. My, my voice is a little, a little hoarse, a little strained today. Last night was our big annual white elephant gift swap party. I made a mention of it a, a few shows ago where I said I was doing a bunch of painting and other kind of home improvements around the house that my wife wanted done in anticipation of the party. She always has this big, uh, not necessarily big, but this to-do list of things for me to touch up, fix, move, whatever around the house, honey-do list, uh, you know, prior to, we typically have, I don't know, 40-ish people come over every year for this thing. Um, except for, you know, COVID was different, obviously, you didn't have it, but so that, you know, she has a bunch of things she wants done around the house. And this year was kind of big. It was, you know, repaint, uh, a few of the 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 rooms, you know, the common rooms, the the public rooms, you know, the living room, foyer, uh, kitchen, et cetera, dining room. So I got that done the last few weeks. And, and anyway, last night was a party. It was, it was a big hit. Uh, quick quick side story. So we we have our house isn't huge. It's like nineteen hundred square feet. It's a split level. You walk in on the ground floor, and then you kind of go up a half half set of stairs to go to like the the main area if you want to call it that, and then another half set of stairs to go up to the living. Uh, I'm sorry, the bedrooms and stuff. But anyway, so you, you walk in and you're right in this foyer. And in an attempt to try to uh, get people uh, from from not congregating in the kitchen so much, the kitchen sort of like the back of that sort of mid level house. Normally, people just kind of clutter around, cluster around there, and rightfully so, I guess. That's where the food and, and drinks are historically. And so, try to you know to pull people to spread them more throughout the house. What I did was, I have this uh, refrigerator in my office. It's kind of like chest height. You know, it's, it's it's bigger than those small little dorm ones, but it's not quite full size. So I brought that over to my house, put it in the foyer, <laughs> nice and trashy. So you walk in the front door and boom, refrigerator right in the face. I've had it there for a few days, but, um, so, you know, put, put all the, most of the drinks in there. I also had a table set up right in the foyer with the rest of the drinks to, uh, and, and it worked. Thankfully it all worked out well, put, pulled people out of the kitchen. They started, there's still a lot of people up there, but a lot of people were also hanging out in the foyer by this, uh, you know, trashy entrance, uh, refrigerator and, in a uh, drink table. So all things considered, party was a success, but my, my voice is really strained because I was the MC of the the gift swap part and had to kind of yell a lot over, you know, 40-ish people to, to announce what gifts are stolen, who's up next, you know, what gifts are still available. Real fun time. So um, that, that's that. So I let you know in case my voice starts to crack or really get raspy by the end of this thing. So let's get into it. Q&A edition today. First question is an email from Andy, another Andy in South Jersey, as in South New Jersey. Um, fun fact for those not from New Jersey, it's a small state, obviously, I'm sure you can see that on a map, but 
there, there's really there's North Jersey, Central Jersey, South Jersey. For people who don't know, it's just like you know, there's a North and a South. It really doesn't make sense to split it up into a Central because it's so small. I live in what's called Central New Jersey. Now, if you look at the state, just you know, pure geographically, I'm clearly in the northern half. You wouldn't even really argue to say that where I am is, is central necessarily, but for whatever reason, I'm considered Central Jersey, uh, and, and Andy here is in, in South Jersey, which very clearly is the lower half of the state if you look at it on a map. But Central Jersey is weird. It's really the lower part of the northern half is what's called Central Jersey. Go figure. So um, Andy's question is, uh, can you explain what makes a 457B deferred compensation plan non-qualifying? He has another couple questions, but let me let me start with that first one. So a 457B plan on the surface kind of looks and feels like other employer retirement plans loosely akin to a 401k, a 403B, or the Federal Thrift Savings Plan, otherwise known as a TSP. 457s, though, can be quite different. And even within the broader umbrella of 457, there's a few different kind of subdivisions. So Andy in particular is mentioning a 457B, B as in uh, basket or boy or whatever, deferred compensation plan. He's asking what makes it non-qualifying. So I'll step back briefly and say there's, there's two broad categories of 457B plans. One that is able to be offered by uh, governmental uh, employers. So you work for the, the state or local municipality or, or police office, uh, you know, police department, they can have governmental 457B plans. Then you can also have non-governmental 457B plans, which are allowed to be offered by tax-exempt employers, such as hospital systems, um, you know, not government-owned, not part of the government, but tax-exempt under the U.S. tax code. They don't have to pay tax. It's kind of a an entity that exists for public good, if you want to consider that, but it's not actually a public entity. That would be the other part, aka the non-governmental 457B plan. So there's, again, the governmental and non-governmental are the two broad stroke 457B plans. They're both non-qualifying, which, which is Andy's question here. So he said, what makes a 457B non-qualifying? The, the, the terminology non-qualifying just simply means um, 457B plans are not covered by the Federal uh, Employer Retirement Plan Protection Act called ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, which stands for Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, I think it is. That was large sweeping uh, regulation put in place meant to protect, as the name implies, employee retirement income security. Specifically, I mean, it does a lot of things, but it, it covers 401k plans, for example. And the intention is it's meant to protect and put in place sort of safeguards and bestow fiduciary responsibility upon the plan administrators, the employers for picking administrators, the investment options within the plan need to be within the participants' best interest in terms of you know, reasonable selection of choices, reasonable or low fees, you know, not excessive fees, et cetera. And anyone who violates that fiduciary duty uh, can, can be held liable for you know potentially harming the participants of the plan so if you work for a private employer and have a 401k for example that's covered by erisa the employee retirement income security act that is a qualifying plan where qualifying means is it covered by erisa 457b plans andy are not covered by erisa whether they are the governmental 457bs or they're the non-governmental aka tax exempt 457bs neither are covered by erisa 
which means they are uh, quote unquote non-qualifying. That's all that means, Andy. So let's uh, and then go on. Also, what are the tax implications of these kinds of plans? Is it correct that non-qualifying plans are distributed on W-2s and not rollable into IRAs? Um, you also say the hospital, I assume this means work in the hospital. The hospital offers both a 403B and this kind of 457. Um, yes, tax implications. So again, I mentioned on the surface, these things sort of look like uh, all other employer retirement plans like 401ks, like 403bs. The devil's in the details, though. They're technically uh, deferred compensation plans. So you were right in using that term in your in your previous question here. The tax implications are when you put money in, yes, you can get a tax deferral on it, basically. Um, I believe the contribution, I'm, I'm not an expert in 457s. I, I got to be frank with that, but I, I do know some basics. Plus, I looked up some more uh, to, to respond to your question here. The, the contributions you make as an employee, and, and I'm assuming, so I'm going to talk about this mainly in context of a non-governmental 457. It seems like you're, you're referring to a hospital you know, a non-public entity, you know, not the municipal or local government. So this is a non-governmental 457B. The the contributions you make, yes, can be uh, tax deferred, meaning that you don't pay taxable income on at the time. But as the name implies, it's really just deferred compensation. You're just choosing to, to later recognize tax on some of your compensation at some point down the road. Um, when you do eventually leave slash retire or whatever the case may be, get fired, um, the, the plan, it can distribute to you this money at the time, or at least make available to you that this is a biggie. They don't necessarily need to actually have you distribute and take the money out. But once they make this money available to you upon your retirement or leaving, it is all taxable at the time. Now, you, depending on the plan, you can have an option to further defer, um, you know, recognition of this income beyond just your retirement date. But I believe by default, you retire, this money is taxable. You know, even if you don't take it out, it's taxable to you once it's available to you. And yes, you're right. For these non-governmental 457B plans, Andy, the because they're technically just compensation, deferred compensation, the money you take out uh, is indeed reported on a W-2 in box one, just as if it was wages. Whereas with the governmental 457B, these are much more akin to, you know, normal other employer plans like 401ks and that distributions are instead reported on a 1099R as opposed to a W-2. So yes, that, that that is correct. Distributions from this non-governmental 457B deferred compensation plan will be reported on a W-2. You're also correct that they are not rollable into IRAs, which is the case, you know, other, almost all other employer retirement plans, 401ks, 403bs, uh, thrift savings plan at the federal level, those are rollable into you know, your, your individual, you know, your IRAs. Uh, to further complicate things, 457Bs that are governmental plans, again, state or local government, police officer, et cetera, those are eligible to be rolled into IRAs. But your non-governmental 457B is not eligible to be rolled into an IRA. The only thing you can do, you can take it out or you can potentially roll it into another non-governmental 457b but that would imply you know you have to have another job somewhere if you're retiring that that's not gonna be an option in which case you have to take it out you know you can't put it into an ira you can't roll it into a different employer type plan like a 401k with a federal thrift savings plan etc um 
so so that that answered uh, the questions you had, Andy. But this this was a good one, and that there's a lot more to consider. I will share a link in the notes to this episode. The IRS has a has a good summary of this on their website that really kind of explains these non governmental 457b plans, which sounds like you have available to you. Furthermore, there's a link within that page to a chart that um, you know a, a really sort of clean bulleted summary chart that compares and contrasts the non-governmental 457b plans with the governmental 457b plans and it's just a side-by-side comparison you know limits and contribution limits and features and ability to roll over to an ira yes or no things like that so definitely uh, check that out for anyone who's interested in learning more about 457b plans whether it's a governmental 457b or a non-governmental 457b I think you'll definitely find that fascinating. Now, for those of you who uh, don't and, and and won't have access to a 457B of, of either nature, then you know disregard this. You probably don't care, and it's just more complexity than uh, you probably need in your life. But if you're ever going to come across this, or at least are just genuinely uh, curious and fascinated, definitely check out the uh, the link I'll post into the the notes of this video. So that's Andy's question. Thank you for that, Andy. Uh, the next one. It's a huge multi-paragraph written in thing from Dan. Uh, I'm just going to try to summarize this as best I could. The The nature of the question is, um, lots of facts and background here, but the nature of the question is he has a 401k, you know, works for a private employer. So has a 401k that has a Roth uh, component to it, meaning you can put money in, not get the tax deduction, but like other types of Roth accounts, the money will grow without tax and it'll eventually come out without tax. Um, and his particular plan allows him to do conversions within the 401k from the traditional uh, pre-tax side of the 401k to the to the Roth side of the 401k. And the question is, does the so so stepping back a little with normal IRAs, not 401ks, but with normal IRAs. You all probably have heard of, uh, there's there's two different five-year rules. One is the overarching governs when you can take out uh, earnings without tax. The other one is specific to conversions. If and when you do conversions in your, in your uh, traditional IRA to your Roth IRA, the monies that you convert uh, typically can't be taken out without penalty, 10% penalty, until it's been five years uh, have passed since you did the conversion, technically starting January 1st of the year of that conversion, or to further complicate things, once you hit 59 and a half, this five-year per conversion rule goes away completely. You no longer have to worry about any sort of timing or delay for taking out your converted monies without the 10% penalty. Um, so question is, uh, again, I'm trying to summarize here. There's a lot, a lot of sort of sentences and paragraphs. So the assumption is he's, he's doing uh, conversions within his 401k from the traditional pre-tax to the Roth uh, for, for multiple years. Um, the question is, does a five-year five uh, waiting period after each conversion still apply after 59 and a half? And it assumes he already satisfied the other five-year rule with his Roth 401k, meaning that's been open and funded at least five years, and also saying he's similarly satisfied the other five-year rule with his Roth IRA, meaning his Roth IRA has been open and funded for at least five years. So in a big picture, um, both your Roth 401k 
uh, Dan and your Roth IRA have have hit the status such that all distributions are quote unquote qualified. And that simply means two things have been met. You are over 59 and a half, which you're saying we're assuming to be the case. And the plan was first funded at least five years ago. And that applies for both your Roth 401k and your Roth IRA, you're saying. So both of those plans have met the qualified distributions rule, which means any monies you take out from either of those Roth plans is completely tax and penalty free, period, in a sentence, stop. Um, now, specifically, you're trying to determine if a Roth 401k conversion made when you are 65 can be subsequently rolled over into your Roth IRA, let's say at age 66, and you want to confirm that you can then access a converted amount as well as any growth uh, that will be tax-free and without penalties. So we can stop there and I can say yes. Um, the Again, because both plans were already qualified, you're over 59 and a half, and both plans are first funded five years ago, yes, if you were to roll money from your Roth 401k to your Roth IRA, you can turn around and take it out tax and penalty-free, period. It doesn't matter that the money within your Roth 401k was just recently converted from the traditional side, doesn't matter. Any dollars that leave your Roth 401k are deemed to be qualified distributions. Again, because you're over 59 and a half and the Roth 401k is funded at least five years ago. So if you then roll it to a Roth IRA, everything in Roth IRA is already a qualified distribution as well, because again, you're over 59 and a half and your Roth IRA was first funded five years ago. So yes, all the money from, from either Roth plan could come out tax and penalty free, whether you roll it over or not, it can come out tax and penalty free. Um, and then just separately going on to say that you, uh, you talk to a different uh, uh, broker and they're telling you that there is a five-year conversion on every Roth 401k. Uh, there's a five-year clock on every Roth 401k conversion. Uh, even if you're converting age 65, they still have to wait five years to be able to get that converted Roth 401k money as tax-free. Uh, I, I I'm, I'm going to flat out say they're, they're, they're incorrect. I have no reason to think what they're saying is accurate. Um, I'm not aware of any twists or turns or exceptions to the rules that they're mentioning that, uh, you know, you're over 65, your Roth 401k is more than five years old. I, I, I don't see, there's no reason for me to think that that they're right in saying you have to still wait five years after a conversion to take the money out, you know, tax or penalty free. So that's that, uh, Dan, hopefully you found that helpful. Thank you for the question. Next. Moving on, one about wash sales from Reed. Thank you, Reed. So uh, let's see, I'll, I'll give you the summary. Uh, I'll give you the question, then I will explain the nature of uh, what's going on here. Hi, Andy, I'm going to... Uh, I've sold some Amazon shares of stock, and I also sold shares of Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, specifically the exchange-traded fund, uh, which is ticker VTI, for, a, for tax-loss harvesting. I want to quickly invest the proceeds into Vanguard's Dividend Appreciation Index exchange-traded fund, but I'm concerned about violating the wash sale rule regarding quote-unquote substantially identical. This is a real fuzzy area. He goes on to say the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index tracks the uh, CRSP Total U.S. Stock Market Index and the other fund, the Dividend Appreciation Fund, tracks a different index, the S&P U.S. Growers Index, uh, in your opinion. And I will not hold you to this. Do you think I would be okay replacing the Amazon and Vanguard total stock market sales with the purchase of the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation Index? 
again, from a wash sale perspective, you know, the ultimate question is, would this be a wash sale? Yes or no? I appreciate your view. And again, I would not hold you to this. Thank you, Reed. All right. Uh, thank you, Reed. So uh, first, I should always say this, this is not investment advice to you, Reed, or anyone else listening. This show is never investment advice. It is simply helpful hints, education, and guidance. Um, the reason why I'm bringing up disclaimers, any, I, I usually stay away from ever mentioning any specific securities by name, by ticker, et cetera, just because I want to stay stay painfully far away from anyone ever considering this the show any sort of uh, anything that even loosely considers advice for what you should or shouldn't do or when you shouldn't do it specifically with regards to investment. So this is not investment advice. Uh, but wash sale, what's a wash sale? So if you sell in a regular brokerage account, not a qualified, you know, tax deferred account or tax free account like a Roth or an IRA or the health savings account, but just a normal brokerage account, if you sell something for a loss, meaning you're selling it for a price that's less than what you paid for it, that loss is uh, deductible. Well, sort of that that loss can help reduce your tax bill. Let me put it that way. So, you know, if you have a loss, you can help uh, that, that that loss can offset something else you sold at a gain such that it reduces the gain, or if you have no gains, for example, and you just have uh, a bunch of realized losses for the year, you can use up to $3,000 of those losses to, to reduce other forms of income like wages or pensions or interest or annuities or whatever. So that's why I'm saying you know, when you realize a loss in a normal taxable brokerage account, it'll, it'll reduce your taxes to at least some extent. Um, so obviously, because of this tax benefit, the IRS doesn't want people taking advantage of it. So if you have a stock that's down from where you bought it, you're like, oh, let me let me, let me save myself some taxes here. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to realize some loss, you know, 5,000 bucks of loss or whatever it is. It's going to help reduce my taxes, but I still like this position. I still want to hold it. So I'm going to sell it, realize the loss, immediately turn around and rebuy it. So I still own the position. Can't do that. Well, you can. But the the loss that you just uh, unlocked and realized could be partially or wholly disallowed under what's called the wash sale. And the wash sale is basically like the IRS saying, we know you're selling this just to just to realize the loss and then you're turning around and rebuying it. We don't want you doing that. If you do do that, you can, but we're going to not let you deduct that loss on your tax return. Now, just for what it's worth. Um, you don't lose that loss forever. Basically, the amount of loss that's disallowed and not able to be deducted in the current year is simply um, reflected by by adding to the the basis or the cost of the 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 uh, position you rebought when when you did this wash sale. And so, when you eventually later resell that position you rebought, that's in effect when you will end up realizing that disallowed loss because again, that disallowed loss is added to your original cost for tax basis reporting purposes. And so if you have a higher initial cost on that on that new purchase, that means you'll have a lower eventual gain when you do sell it. That's how you, you basically make up the disallowed loss that you had from the wash sale. So a little more about wash sales. Uh, specifically, you can't purchase or repurchase the, a, a security that's quote unquote substantially identical either 30 days before the date of the sale that led to the loss or 30 days after. So anywhere in that window, it's a 60, it was a 61 day window um, around the sale date where you cannot repurchase that same thing. Or if you do, some or all of the loss on what you sold will be disallowed. Now to take it a step further, uh, not to get too off track here, but not only can you not rebuy the same thing 30 days before, or 30 days after in your regular brokerage account, you also can't rebuy in your IRA or any account you own for that matter. 
even if it is a, a tax deferred, tax qualified account like an IRA or a Roth IRA. Similarly, if you're married, your spouse can't rebuy the quote unquote substantially identical security in his or her accounts, uh, even if you're the one who sold it for a loss in your brokerage account. Um, so, so, okay, so so that I'll leave that there for now. As far as the substantially identical, and this is the, the, the crux of your question here, it, the IRS hasn't been entirely clear yet, and I don't know if they will be, with regards to funds, you know, diversified funds, and how they play into the wash sale rule. What is clear is, for example, if you were to sh- sell shares of Amazon at a loss, you can't turn around and rebuy shares of Amazon within 30 days before or 30 days after. If you do, you'll have a wash sale. Furthermore, and the IRS has made this clear, you also can't buy other securities whose whose prices or whose exposure is directly derived from Amazon. For example, you sell Amazon in a loss in your brokerage account, you, you can't turn around and buy a call option on Amazon. If you do, that would be a wash sale. You can't buy what's called a futures contract on Amazon. It's another form of financial derivative. If you do, that would be a wash sale. So anything that, that basically directly ties its exposure to Amazon is quote unquote substantially identical for purposes of wash sales and it will invoke a wash sale. Where it gets gray is if you invest in, for example, you sell uh, an S&P 500 index fund from Vanguard at a loss, it's clear you can't turn around and rebuy that exact same Vanguard fund within 30 days before 30 days after if you do it to be a wash sale. But what's not clear, and the IRS has never given formal guidance, what if you were to instead buy a Schwab S&P 500 fund or a Fidelity S&P 500 fund, would that invoke a wash sale? Don't know. The IRS has never said. Now, my opinion, and, and I think anyone else who, who's at least, you know, at least mildly knowledgeable of this stuff will tell you the same. The spirit of the law is very much that you can't sell one S&P 500 fund for a loss and buy another S&P 500 fund, even if it is from a different fund company like Vanguard versus Fidelity versus Schwab. The spirit of the law would be violated under a wash sale. Um, so, so, so don't do it. Now, I don't know whether or not your custodian will report that. Like normally custodians will report if you sell Amazon, rebuy it, it will, they will flag your 1099 at the end of the year to say it was a wash sale. I don't, I frankly don't know if you're going to flag selling Vanguard's S&P 500 fund and buying Fidelity's S&P 500. If they'll flag that as a wash sale, they might, but uh, I, I don't, don't know for sure. I, nonetheless, I wouldn't do it. That that clearly reeks of wash sale, in my opinion. Um, so, so, so now, what if it's not just S and P for S and P? And this gets back to your question. Um, I mean, I'll cut right to it. No, uh, Reed, I, I don't see what you're doing as being a wash sale. I don't even see it being remotely close or arguable by the IRS that it's a wash sale because it's far from substantially identical. Other questions I got: If I sell Exxon and buy Chevron. Is that substantially identical? Because they're both large energy companies. And the answer is flat out no. There's, there's an, enough difference between them, their their um, customer base, their product, their fundamentals, their, their profitability, et cetera, that no, they're not substantially identical. Uh, in, in your case here, selling Amazon and the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, which is for the most part, all intents and purposes, all stocks in the US that are, that are publicly traded. And then, and so selling those and rebuying the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation Index. No, very different. Now, if coincidentally, here, here's my view, and I think the IRS would probably agree with it, but in order to be substantially identical when, when you're talking about funds, the fund you sell and the fund you buy need to be the exact same list of underlying securities and 
the exact same uh, proportion of each, or at least super, super close. So if one fund has 30 different stocks beneath it, and you sell that, and you rebuy a fund that has those same 30 plus two others, I would argue that's not substantially identical because you got 32 different companies instead of 30. So I think you'd be safe there. Uh, in your case, you're clearly safe, but I'm just kind of make up make up examples where, where it might be a little little uh, more hairy. Um, or for example, like you sell an energy index and then you rebuy like a home builders index, very different. Uh, your case, I, I don't know. I, I just I don't see it even being close to remotely uh, substantially identical. Uh, I would be concerned again if it was like you were selling one S and P five hundred fund for another. That's asking for trouble, possibly. But otherwise, no, you're you're very different. Basically, rule of thumb, I think to keep in mind again, the 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 fund needs to have the exact same roster of securities. You know, the two you're buying and selling, and the proportions need to be identical or close to it. So I would even go so far as to argue as one fund has fifty stocks. And they're each equally weighted, so two percent in each stock. You know, of those fifty stocks, another fund has the exact same fifty stocks, but let's assume the top ten are each five um, percent weighting, and the others are much smaller. I, I think as a really good case to be made that those two are not substantially identical because they're not going to move the same. The price differences aren't going to be the same, et cetera. I, I, I can't fathom the IRS saying those two are substantially identical, and that's a much, much more. Um, less obvious example than you know uh than yours here Reed. so uh, i'll stop now i feel like i'm taking up too much time on this but point is um no i think it takes a lot in order to be deemed substantially identical when it comes to funds it has to be so strikingly the same that it's like you can't argue this is even close to different but but, but you're fine in your case Reed. all right i'll move on uh belabored that one uh to to, to death and then some next question is from uh i don't know if there's a name on this no okay uh, this was in response to my monthly newsletter. I, I summarized the differences between treasury bills, notes, and bonds. And in response, this reader asked, um, I'm considering one or more 10-year U.S. treasury notes. As you know, per Fed speak, the Federal Reserve rate might be higher in 2023 than in 2022. Would waiting to purchase a 10-year U.S. treasury note within a Roth IRA be better now, meaning uh, late 2022 to early 2023? or later in 2023. What about purchasing it within my 401k? How about, how about purchasing it in my taxable brokerage account? And then part two to this question is, uh, will future beneficiaries be required to sell the US Treasury notes before they mature? Thanks in advance, especially if you create a video on this topic, which I have not, but uh, it is a good idea to do if and when I do get re-engaged in making more videos, which is one of my loose goals for, for 2023. So, Oh man, there's a lot here. Buckle in. I can be a while on this. I'll try to keep it as short as I can. So I'm going to break this down. You mentioned Fed speak. The Federal Reserve is is on its continued quest to try to slow down inflation, and it does seem to be working, albeit slower than than desired. But nonetheless, it's working. The recent Fed commentary has has they've they've said they're going to slow down their uh their their uh, pace. And their rate of interest rate increase, they're not going to stop, but they're going to slow down for now because they do see inflation starting to finally, you know, it seems like it's past its crest, at least here in the U.S. So in FedSpeak, the Fed has said they will continue raising rates uh, for, for the next, I don't know, I think next few months, at least into early 2023. But does that directly impact the rate or the price of 10-year U.S. Treasury bonds, technically called the U.S. Treasury notes? The answer is no. Here's why. 
this is a big one, but when the Federal Reserve says they're raising rates, the, the rate they're actually changing is what's called the federal funds rate. That doesn't directly apply to you or anyone listening. The federal funds rate is an overnight interest rate. Specifically, it's the rate that member banks of the Federal Reserve can borrow and lend money to one another when they need to meet reserve requirements at the Federal Reserve. So, so banks need to have a certain amount of cash basically uh, sitting at the Federal Reserve system as like a sort of good faith deposit, if you will. Look, you know, I got enough cash to, to, to buffer the business I'm doing. And any given day, if they're short uh, cash on hand at the Fed, they can borrow, and it's called federal funds. When, when banks deposit money with the Federal Reserve, that money is called federal funds. If one bank is short federal funds for the night, they can borrow federal funds from another bank that happens to have excess federal funds. The interest rate that's charged on that loan is the federal funds rate. And that is the rate that the Federal Reserve directly controls slash manipulates. It's a bad word, but um, directly controls when, when they announce it's going up half percent or 0.75%. So, so that rate doesn't directly impact you or me or anyone else listening. Indirectly, it can and often does because these ultra short-term rates that these banks need to charge one another on these Fed funds can and often do trickle through to the rest of their lines of business. If it costs them more to borrow money, to borrow Fed funds, um, they're going to pass that cost through by charging higher interest rates on loans they make to you to buy a car or a house, et cetera. And so that's, that's by the Fed changing the Fed funds rate and increasing it, it's trying to make the cost of money more expensive. It's trying to make loan interest rates higher. So people simply slow down buying and that's going to try to help quell inflation. Um, so anyway, that's the Fed funds rate. Now, here's where things get disjointed and difficult. The, 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 the Treasury security you're talking about is a, is a bond issued by the U.S. Treasury that has 10 years until it matures. And when it matures, it pays back its principal, uh, and then it pays interest along the way. It's technically called a Treasury note. You're asking, should you, uh, this is not investment advice again, but you're asking, is it better to buy it now, buy it later in the year, on the expectation that the Federal Reserve is going to increase rates more between now and early next year? My answer is, don't know. Uh, my crystal ball is broken. Yes, we know the short-term federal funds rate is almost certain to increase over the next few months because the Fed said it will, but that doesn't directly mean that the price or the, the interest rate you can get on 10-year U.S. Treasury notes has to similarly go up between now and then. The uh, For better or worse, the rate, the price of the 10-year Treasury note is driven by market uh, dynamics, supply and demand. It's, it's basically the market's consensus view of what inflation and economic growth is likely to do over the next 10 years. That sort of subjective view about the future is what sets the rate and therefore the price of 10-year treasury notes. It is not necessarily directly related to the Fed funds rate. For example, Fed funds rate is, is higher now than the rate on the 10-year treasury. The rate on 10-year treasury is like 3.6% as of I'm recording this. The uh, Fed funds rate, I don't even know what it is, it's over 4%, I think. I should probably know this. But like six-month and one-year treasury bills are are paying 4.5%, give or take, which is higher than the 3.6% you get on a 10-year treasury note, which which is a you know crazy dynamic that doesn't persist for long and it doesn't happen regularly. Uh, where am I going with this? So I, I, I don't know. Um, point is, uh, question asker, it, it, there's no way to know. Uh, this is just speculation at this point. It's, it's frankly not much different than speculating on the future of the stock market, like saying, I think the stock market's going to go up, so I'm going to buy now, or I think it's going to go down, so I'm going to sell now, right? We all know how kind of futile 
and um, gambling, basically that is, this question is not that much different. You know, if you want to buy a 10-year treasury note, waiting because you think rates will or won't go, you know, go up or go down is, is, is not much more than speculating like it is with the future of the stock market. So can't answer. Um, it really depends what you're buying this for and why. If you're buying it to hold it until it matures and you want it for the income it throws off along the way, then maybe buying it now is the right answer. Like I said, you can get about 3.6%, I think, is the, is the current uh, interest, give or take, on, on these things. It might be slightly higher. I, I don't know. Whatever. It's under 4%. Um, if you're buying it just to hold and get interest, th then sure, you know, maybe now is the right time. If you're buying it because you plan on reselling it and you're hoping the price goes up from when you buy it to when you sell it, that's pure speculation. And, uh, you know, no one knows when the right time is to buy that. Anyone who says they do is, is nothing more than, uh, you know, gambling and, and think they know the future. Uh, so that's part one. The other part was, um, I guess, does, does the answer differ depending whether you're buying your Roth IRA versus your 401k versus your uh, regular brokerage account? The answer is no. Uh, you know, the speculation aspect is the same regardless where you're buying it. We don't know what the price is going to do. going to go up, go down. Nobody knows. Uh, interest rates, you know, we don't really know the direction of the 10-year interest rates at this point. It's, it's really just speculation and guesswork. So no, account type doesn't matter. And then you end by asking about what future beneficiaries be required to sell these T notes before they mature. So this is on the assumption that you do actually buy them. You pass. Uh, do you heirs who inherit them? Do they have to sell them? Uh, the answer is no. If they inherit them in a regular brokerage account, no. They simply inherit them as is. They can then do with them as they please. They can sell them if they want. They don't have to. They can hold them until they mature, in which case the bonds will cease to exist at that point. Um, if it's in an IRA, they don't have to sell them. They, they, they may need to take distributions from the IRA, required minimum distributions, depending on how this law gets finalized and the IRS interpretation about required distributions from inherited accounts. But they don't necessarily need to sell the bonds unless they need to sell them to meet distributions. But that's that's sort of a separate you know separate reason. So uh, that's, that's that question asker. Again, I apologize for calling you question asker, but I don't see your name on here. Um, Good question. Hopefully that, that helped. I know it wasn't the answer you're looking for, but it, it's really not a clean or easy answer for that one. And next uh, question from Tom. And Tom, I did write back to ask for clarifications. I'm not sure, but I'll answer this both ways uh, just in case. So Tom asks, I'm over 65. And when I was working, I contributed to a Roth IRA for nearly 20 years. I'm planning on withdrawing a small portion from this account. Uh, can you tell me how to figure out the quote unquote basis of this IRA? And while I have you, explain the basis for Roth conversions. Thank you, Tom. So uh, as I wrote back to you, Tom, I, I says, when you said you contributed to a Roth IRA for 20 years, I'm, I'm thinking you meant traditional IRA because the questions after that lead me, to, lead me to believe you're referring to traditional IRA. So I'll first answer this, assuming you did actually mean Roth IRA. So you contributed to a Roth IRA for 20 years. You're 65. You plan on withdrawing a small portion. Can you tell me how to figure out the basis of this? Uh, basis doesn't matter at that point. Like, like I mentioned earlier in this episode, you've hit the point where all Roth IRA distributions are quote unquote qualified. You're over, uh, you're over 59 and a half and you funded this account at least five years ago. You can stop worrying about rules and basis and whatever. Every dollar you take out from any Roth IRA of yours will be tax and penalty free, period. Basis doesn't matter at that point. Uh, next question was, well, I have you can you explain the basis for Roth conversions. And this is the one that really threw me. So if you already have a Roth IRA, you know, you don't, uh, you know, you're not converting out of it, right? So basis doesn't matter there either. So now let's assume you instead meant traditional IRA. You're, you've been working and contributing to a traditional IRA for 20 years. 
you're planning on drawing a small portion from it. Can you tell me how to figure out the basis? Um, basis it would only matter to the extent that you put money in or some of the money you put in, you did not take a de tax deduction for at the time, such as your income was over the limit. So you couldn't take a deduction for it at the time. In traditional IRA speak, basis just simply means money that's already been taxed. Unlike IRAs where normally all the money is pre-taxed because you got a deduction for it, you're not taxed until you take it out. So basis for a traditional IRA is just simply money you put in that was already taxed, meaning you did not take a deduction for it. How do you figure it out? Uh, frankly, that's on you. Um, you have to track it every year. You know, Every year of these 20 years that you put money in where you did not take a deduction on it, that's basis. And it's ultimately on you to have tracked that every year. Custodians won't do it. This is just between you and the IRS's basis thing. And the IRS doesn't know either. Um, it all depends how you report on your tax return and et cetera. So uh, if you don't have records of it, the best you can do is go back and try to retrace it. Look at all your tax returns from the prior 20 years when you made contributions. Try to figure out, did you take a deduction or not? If you did not, then you know add all those up. That would be your total basis during the, uh, the, uh, the 20 years you had this. And finally, you ask, um, how about for Roth conversions? So same thing. I'm assuming you may have meant traditional IRA. How do you figure out basis for Roth conversions? Same answer. You would need to have tracked all of your non-deductible contributions you made throughout those 20 years, tally them up. That's the basis. Then when you convert, um, it's that basis amount, that tallied basis amount that will flow into uh, form 8606 on your tax return. And that's the form that calculates how much of your conversion is taxable versus how much is not taxable because it's deemed a conversion of a portion of that basis. Since that basis was already taxed when it went in, you're not taxed again when you convert it. All right, Tom, thank you. Uh, I feel like, man, I feel like today's a thick one and how, how technical all these questions are. Not the easiest of listens in today's podcast. Um, one more I want to answer. This, this wasn't formally sent in to be addressed on the show here, but I just, it just came into my Facebook group today, Taxes and Retirement. I thought it was worth mentioning. So the IRS, um, the the... 2023 contribution limits for HSAs or health savings accounts was announced. It's going to be $7,750 uh, for, uh, for 2023 if it's a family HSA eligible plan, you know, hide it up with health insurance plan. And the question was, in addition to being able to contribute the full 7750 family HSA limit, what if it's a uh, married couple, you know, one spouse is the policyholder that has this family coverage plan and both spouses are over 55. And with HSAs, if you're over 55, or at least 55, I should say, as of December 31st of that year, you can contribute an additional $1,000 catch up for being over 55 uh, into the HSA. So the question is, married couple, both over 55, one spouse has the policy, it's a family plan, uh, how much can be con contributed in total to HSAs? The question was, just to confirm, the, the Facebook group member said, can I open one HSA in my name where I can put in 7750 in 2023 to, to max out the family contribution plus put in $1,000 for my own um, age catch up? And, and yes, you can. Separately, the spouse can also open, if he or she doesn't already have one, can also open an HSA and put in $1,000 for his or her catch up because he or she is over 55. The answer is yes. So in total... 
this married couple over 55 with a family uh, HSA eligible health insurance plan can put in $9,750 into the HSA in 2023. That's good money. Um, so, so yes, uh, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, uh, whoever it was that asked that question, uh, yes, you, you can do what you asked. Again, $9,750 into HSAs in total, but it would be across two different accounts. One account needs to be in the name of the person who has the policy. The other account is the other spouse where he or she can just throw in the thousand bucks for, um, you know, for the catch up. Now, in reality, I think you can actually slice it and dice it, you know, of the total $9,000, combined contribution limit for both spouses. The spouses can choose who puts in how much their respective HSAs, keep it clean, uh, keep it clean and easy. Uh, I don't know, might as well just, I mean, don't take this as advice, but the spouse with the plan, it's sort of logically, optically makes more sense for that spouse to put in the full 7750 uh, family family max plus a thousand contribution. And the other spouse who isn't the policyholder just put in the thousand dollar contribution. I feel like that's sort of cleaner and more, um, I don't know, like I said, just, just optically it makes more sense. But but technically, I think you can split that 9750 and contribute it however you choose between the two spouses so long as you don't exceed that total limit between the two of you uh, in total. <sighs> All right. My voice is definitely starting to starting to strain a little bit. Um, thank you for listening. Again, anyone who would like a question answered in a future Q&A edition, you can send them to andypanko at gmail.com, either in written form or uh, voice recording. And if you do like this show, you'll definitely be into my other content sources. My Facebook group is Taxes and Retirement. YouTube channel is Retirement Planning Demystified, which I do plan on doing more with that in 2023. So be on the lookout there. I also plan on upping my uh, video production quality, getting better camera, better sound, better lighting. Hopefully they uh, they look better because I re completely realize the the production quality of what I've done so far is, is quite quite cheesy. I mean, it gets the job done, which ultimately that's all that matters, I guess. But whatever. I want to try to increase it, make it a little, little prettier. Uh, my other um, content source would be my monthly newsletter, which is Retirement Planning Insights. And you can find links to all three of these things in the notes to this episode. And finally, my shameless beg for some uh, positive feedback here. If you do like and appreciate the show, I would, I would greatly value if you would take a few moments to leave a review, a thumbs up, a five star, a uh, whatever means of acknowledgement you can do on whatever podcast pla pla listening platform you use to listen to retirement planning education. All right, that is it. I am done. Andy out. Thank you as always for listening and I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.